And welcome to a brand new edition of Match Points here on TennisMajors.com, the post-French Open Roland Garros edition. Look at the panel, familiar faces, old faces, old faces back in new old places. Good to see you again, sir. Let's begin with the former Wimbledon champion. She's a tennis journalist as well these days. She's on both sides of that. Welcome back, Marianne Bartoli. Also, speaking of journalism, hi there, writer, author, and journalist, Carol Bouchard joins us once again. Thank you so much. And there he is. We haven't seen him in a while, but he's back where he belongs with us. The uh, senior editor, Racket Magazine as well, um, tennis journalist and reporter, Mr. Ben Rothenberg. All right, you guys, let's get right at it. This is the post Roland Garros edition as we just wrapped up the French Open 2020. Shock winner. Who would have seen that this guy uh, would have come out of nowhere to claim this title. But uh, in all seriousness, let's get right at the issue. Many people questioning and wondering whether or not Rafa Nadal pushed his health too far. The question I ask you is, did Rafa push it too far with his health to make sure that he could play and finish this tournament? Let's begin with you, Marian Bartoli. Well, for me, it was very interesting because as I was working at Ron Garros, I was really courtside on a lot of his matches. And I could see on his face because, you know, you can read the emotion a lot more when you have someone getting his towel one meter away from you or playing the ball two meters away from you rather than commentating from a booth when you're so high. And it's really a lot more difficult to read the body language. Um, so despite, of course, this absolutely incredible match against Verev, which was for me absolutely insane in terms of all levels, even against Ojalia Simon, or even before that, he was really suffering. And you could tell, like, the pain was still there. Um, he was trying to manage it through. But I think for Rafa, everything was played until the 5th of June. And I don't think he would have, you know, put a schedule outside of this or put anything forward beyond the 5th of June. His goal was just to win a 14th round Garros, a 22nd Grand Slam, and then see. And for me, what he has done was just go way beyond the limits of any, I think, human being with support in terms of pain and everything he had to go through to get that title and then assess. And I think right now he's with his medical team just assessing sort of how much damage in a way he has done on top of all the suffering he has already before that Roland Garros because he just really wanted that title. And if that's what it takes for him to get it, you know what, he's ready to accept that. But I don't think he has said, well, I'm going to save myself to go through the year. I don't, I just really don't think that was his mindset towards Ron Garros. He just wanted to win that one more than anything in the world and then just see. And I think right now he's just thinking, well, maybe I'm not going to Wimbledon. Maybe it's not my surface. Um, I just taking that as a race. Maybe I would just play one tournament before US Open. Maybe I'm not going on hardcore at all. I just, I think right now he's using this week to assess with his medical team to see how far he can still go. But his goal was to take the 22nd and hats off to him. He went through, I mean, a head of a tournament and did it. But I don't think he wanted to save anything for, for that title. Absolutely not. Carol Bouchard, is it really any of our business whether or not he's pushed his health? I mean, it's his health, his decision. This debate seems to be one in which really what place is it of ours? I would say no, it is because when he comes to press and said to be able to play, I received an injection a day. I needed to put my foot to sleep. Then, of course, it's become, 
of business because then you can wonder where is the limit because without a medical team, he wasn't in the draw. He wasn't able to compete. So, and also maybe it's our business because maybe we care about him too, but I completely agree with Marion. I think after Rome, with the pain he had, he knew that the sacrifice is clear. I need to play with the pain. I need to do everything that I can to win Roland Garros. This is a tournament I need. And whatever happens, I will play. And I mean, it's, it's the maximum that he did, but throughout his career, he tried. I mean, he played Wimbledon still with a, a foot that was already, you know, a slip. He, he tried to play Miami with a broken rib. That's the thing is he's so resilient to pain. He has such a, a threshold to pain that is much, much higher than anybody else that he is constantly pushing the limit. And I think in Roland Garros, I mean, he tried one year to play with a, a tendon in his wrist that was about to, to pop. So it's not reasonable. It's People would say it's insane, but it's the, the relationship between Rafa and Roland Garros, maybe it's not a, um, a normal relationship. He, he has put so much effort into this tournament. He needs this tournament to keep going. If he, he cannot imagine to give up. So of course he pushed it too far. Of course you playing on, on a feet and a half and with the, the, the amount of pain still as agree with Marion that you could see on his face despite all the treatment that he got. It's, it's crazy, but also the margin that he has. If the other guys were good enough for him, he wouldn't be even able to try, but he knows that except maybe Novak, he, he had it, you know? So I think, yeah, he pushed too far, but that's what makes Rafa Rafa. All right, uh, Ben, let me clarify my opening remarks before we ask you. When I said old faces, I didn't mean you have an old face. You have a young, boyish face. I meant familiar face from the past who is nice enough to rejoin us with his boyish, uh, handsome, young face. Um, all, all kidding aside, welcome back, sincerely. Um, did Rafa push it too far to make sure he could play this? Would, would he have done this if it were, say, the Australian Open? I'm not sure. I mean, he did obviously win the Australian Open this year and, and was dealing with maybe some physical issues. He's always dealing with something. The foot issue has been persistent for these last few years of his career, and he has just ways of managing it better or worse. But I do think he is sort of flirting with a line of what divides, you know, courageous with dangerous on this injury. And we just don't know. I'm not a medical expert on these sorts of things, on anesthesia and long-term foot injuries. But you know that when you're pushing through pain, if it is making things worse for him in life, Later on, that's something he says he doesn't want. He's, he's very concerned about that, at least he says he is, but yet he keeps pushing and pushing all the time. And it's just, it's a strange visual to see Rafa after winning, you know, a very dominant final over Casper Rude, 6-3, 6-3, 6 love, to see the video of him going to the trophy shoot at the Eiffel Tower the next day and like limping to the trophies, uh, you know, position for the photo. Like it, it's a strange contrast. We're not seeing the full effect of this and we don't know the full effect of what it will have on his life in the present and, and in the future, longer term, I mean, it's, maybe it's not going to affect him either way. Maybe he would continue being this degenerative foot condition he would have with or without uh, competitive elite level tennis. But it, it can be tough to watch sometimes just seeing him him limping around. But to him, the sacrifice is worth it. And I asked him, you know, in the press conference, what is it that's, that's pushing you? Is it, you know, you've already won so much. You've won 14 of these. Why why keep risking more for it? And he said, what drives me is just sort of my passion for for competing. And that's what has me out here. So if that's it's it's his personal choice. It's like you sort of said before, the Carol's. It's his body, his choice. Um, I do worry sometimes about the example it sets to to kids and to other people. You know, in terms of pushing through injuries. I think even this is a case with like Roger Federer, who has this stat that comes up with uh, never having retired from a single match, um, which I think can set maybe a bad example sometimes. Maybe there are times you should retire and preserve your health in matches, like what happened last year with her catch at the Wimbledon. Uh, where he didn't play again for a year after what he did to himself in that match. So, you know, I think there is a, a limit that should be looked at. Not all athletes pushing through pain all the time is 
something to say bravo over. Sometimes it can be uh, concerning. Yeah, as I was saying, you don't need to have studied nonverbals and body language to know, as Mario noted, anyone with any background whatsoever could see this was a man who was hurting, was attempting to push through it. Whether or not that's in his best interest, I guess that's for him to decide. All right, let's stay with Rafa Nadal, who, who says that the Grand Slam total win record doesn't really mean that much. When he says that, what is he actually saying? What is he actually saying when he claims Total win doesn't really mean that much. And, and let's start where we finished. Ben, I see you thinking. Go right ahead. <laughs> I think he's just, I mean, I don't want, I don't think it's his personality to say it just to annoy Novak. But that's sort of the effect, I would think, because Djokovic is, has been open about wanting these, these records and, and targeting them and caring about them. And it almost seems like Nadal is intentionally not taking them. I mean, look, I mean, if Nadal was satisfied, I mean, Nadal's done so much his career already. If he wasn't still driving to do, get more and more and more all the time, he would have stopped. You know, five years ago, or at least when, you know, ever these injuries became more debilitating. Uh, so I think he is still competitive. I think his team is certainly very competitive still around him. And the teams of these people certainly care about who finishes first in this uh, race between the three, the big three. Uh, maybe Nadal will say it doesn't matter. And maybe he means it on some level. But, you know, no, I mean, he, it, he cares. Is it more been a case of him being humble or more a case of maybe an insurance policy in case he doesn't wind up with it all? I don't know if it's humble. I think it's more like almost like philosophical. I think he's just trying to be sort of like, you know, the journey is the destination kind of way of talking about it more than just being results oriented. They all find their own way to go through that, that ambition that they get. Novak is really outspoken about wanting to be the best and wanting the record because that's what pushes him. I think Rafa has always, to be able to handle the pressure, has always taken a step back being like, my life won't change if I win 20 or 30. It's okay if I don't make it because that's what works with him to keep pushing without feeling like it's overwhelming. And also he said something at press after winning. He said, Novak, uh, Roger and I, we have already achieved our dreams. So I think he met if he has won everything he wanted to. So now it's kind of a bonus. I don't think he cares massively about the number. I think he cares maybe more than he wants to say that finishing above Novak because they have egos. I mean, you don't have this kind of champions without an ego. That this competition is between themselves. So it would be it would be unrafa not to care of being first at this position with the number of Grand Slam titles. But I think that just his way to just handle. The situation, Novak needs to put it out there, Rafa needs to put it at the back, and Roger needs to make as if it doesn't even happen. So, <laughs> you know, to each his own. <laughs> well, I have, I have actually a lot of things to say about that. First of all, one thing that always and uh, will always strike me is I, ne I don't think anyone can beat winning 14 times the same title and 14 times a Grand Slam. And I don't think even if... Um, Novak is winning and ending up, let's say, at 25 Grand Slam. I'm giving just a random numbers. I think winning 14 times the same Grand Slam to Rafa worth more than winning 25 overall. And and that is a whole debate is all. But for him, that dominance that he was able to get on one surface is probably, you can argue on this, but one of the biggest sports achievements across any sports and across the board. So I think it would always put that first compared to the overall global number. For Novak, if he gets to 25 and let's say Rafa is stopping at 22, he will say, well, look, I'm the best globally and overall because I've been able to win on all the surfaces on multiple occasions. So that's a debate between the one and each other. But I think for Rafa, what was the most important is to get that 14, is to get as many Roland Garros as possible because 
his career has been shaped on that court. He lost three times since 2005 at Roland Garros. Three times. I mean, I can't even think of being more dominant in a surface than this record in itself. And I think for him, that stands as being the best that ever lived to play on clay. And if Novak beat that with being the best overall, when well, I think he's fine with it. So I think that's probably what he means by, I don't really care who's finished first and because he has that record on the other hand on one surface. I think for Roger, it's more sort of sitting in the middle and it's probably in the weirder position. But for Rafa, I think that's the meaning of that. Now that said, I was um, sent to watch the practice of Rafa before his match against Novak um, for the TV I was working at Roland Garros. I never saw him that stressed and the whole team of his that stressed before match. They didn't even exchange why high contact. Not one word was said. They He just went through his practice with Mark Lopez, just telling him what to do in terms of exercise and drills. That was about it in terms of talking or sitting down or drinking or anything. Final came, I was also sent courtside and everyone was chatting and you know he was talking to his coach just as normal. But that match was so particular that that leads me to say that every time when there is Novak involved, there is just that much of extra pressure and that much of extra competing on any kind of level. So I think it's, it's Rafa kind of ways to say, well, you know, even because Novak can play for longer and is he will last maybe a little bit more. If I get 14 wrong arrows, you know, that puts me right there at the top. Let's move along, guys, to question number three here quickly. Um, and we'll stay with Rafa. This is the last question on the topic of Mr. Nadal. When he claims, when Rafa claims that Djokovic is actually in better position to ultimately own the all-time record, is he correct in saying so? Uh, let's begin with you, Carol Bouchard. Oh, yes, he is. I mean, because because of Novak's game and... First of all, because Novak is healthy, he doesn't have a debilitating injury. He can play maybe three, four or five more years and Rafa knows that he probably cannot. And also because Novak has been able to dominate on hard court, grass, and he can win again on clay. I mean, that's the logical brain of Rafa. He's, he's always been extremely honest uh, regarding what's happening. And he knows that on paper, Novak has much more chances to make it. But he's going to make it as difficult as he can to prevent him from doing it. But he knows... The, the, he often said, I remember that... None of Roger, uh, Novak and Andy has been as much injured as I've been. So they've all had more, much more chances than I did because I missed so many Grand Slam because of my injuries. So I think as Novak is so much, we thought, we think that healthier than him, for sure, on paper, he has more chances to, to beat the record. All right. So Maureen, if you agree with Carol, I'm not saying you do, but if you do, what would be the motivation then? Why would he claim that were the case if it's true? Go ahead, Maureen. Well, to take some pressure away. Just very simple. I think he's, he's honest. I think the whole analysis is right. Um, let's not forget that we still need to wait for the vaccine situation because, you know, COVID, some COVID cases has been ramping up in China again. Let's say end of summer, um, fall is coming. Everyone is asking again to get some vaccine and some vaccination or some sort of vaccination. They say he can't play the West Open, he can't play the Australian Open next year. Then it's another entire ball game because we're taking away some chances from, from Novak and those are with the Grand Slam he has the most chances to win outside of Wimbledon. So if you take those away, that's another total, total story. But I think Rafa is just doing that to say, well, look, I've been doing my job. I've been winning on clay. 
I've been winning Australian Open, which was definitely a massive surprise, especially when you see the contest and especially when you see the final and the scenario of that final being two sets to love down against Medvedev. I think he was definitely not expecting himself to win that Grand Slam. He got Raul Garros, he's a 22. He's taking just the pressure off saying, well, look, I've been doing my part of the job. I'm injured. I'm playing through the pain that probably none of any other human being could be able to go through. If Novak beat that, well, that's too good. That that's my that's the way I'm interpreting his declaration, and I think he's right in doing so, um, because why you should fight against something that you can't control? He has been doing his part of the job. He has been winning everything has been possible for him to win, under the circumstances and under his physical and health situation. So it's based on that. Novak is coming up with something better. I mean, what can you do about it? Ben, uh, same question: Is he correct? that Joker's in better position? And if so, I'd like to hear another conspiracy theory on your part as to why um, he would um, he would put it out no, there. No, Marion hit the points I was going to make as well. I mean, basically, he's taking the pressure off himself and putting it on Novak to add more pressure to Novak, saying, Novak, if you don't pass me, you're you know screwing it up. Good luck. Uh, but it's still very hard to win, you know, two or three more Grand Slams when you're already 35 years old. This is not an automatic for, for Novak. At some point, for all these guys, the well will run dry. You know, we've seen it happen relatively suddenly for a lot of top players, you know, like Serena, who would have thought the 2017 Australian Open would be her last Grand Slam. And it looks now like almost certainly it will wind up being her last Grand Slam title. You never know when you're going to hit that wall. Um, and so this, you know, a slam in the hand is worth two in the bush or more uh, to use that metaphor for for tennis. I, I think he's taking the pressure off himself. And I also agree with Marion. I mean, this vaccine issue is not over for Novak. As of now, he would not be able to enter the U.S. or Australia. Um, and that makes life much more complicated for him. He's making life complicated for himself right now, still. All right, let's move on now to the women's side in this French Open with now a record-tying 35th consecutive match win streak since the year 2000, of course. Is it, po- is it possible that we are still underestimating Iga Svantec? I know, Ben, you've been a huge fan for a very long time, but is it possible we're still not fully appreciating what it is that she's doing and what it is she might still do. Ben, go ahead and get it started. I mean, what she's doing is incredible. I think the numbers speak for itself there. And she picked, in some ways, the toughest time to have this long streak come because it was the longest stretch of the tennis calendar without a Grand Slam. If you do this any other time, you're going to get at least one Grand Slam title, maybe two, maybe three out of it, you know, if you if you space it differently where she did. So her consistency of being able to do that at some big tournaments, some, a lot of WTA 1000 tournaments and the only 500 she played was Stuttgart, which is a very loaded uh, tournament. So there was plenty of quality in these wins. But I think what's really more remarkable to me uh, than the number itself is just how incredibly far of the pack she seems. Like she, there's no one out there right now who's sort of a potential challenger to her. You have to really have to use your imagination. And I just think we're at a point in women's tennis right now where very few women are sort of playing their best right now. I think a lot of people are struggling. A lot of people are going in and out. Some people like Coco Golf, we'll get to, I'm sure, later, like hasn't quite reached her peak, is still developing, is still a ways away from being that kind of top player. A lot of the players who were in like the Guadalajara field for the finals last year have really had pretty disappointing seasons this year. Uh, Kontovite, Krejcikova, you know, so on and so forth, Sabalenka, uh, lots of them just not doing really their best. And so there's a lot of space. I think really the only player who in top of women's tennis who's also kind of playing her best right now is Anja Burr. And she took a surprise first round loss at the French Open, which we didn't see coming. Uh, but other than that, I think there's still just no real competitors for her. And even so, we had to grasp with, with Iga. And I don't think it's her best service, but also 
I don't know who beats her still because she's just that much better than everybody. You watch her matches uh, when she's all the way focused, especially in the later rounds of these tournaments. It's not remotely competitive. It's compelling to watch because just seeing someone that much at the top of their game is, is pretty astounding to watch, the same as it was with peak Federer, peak Nadal, peak Serena. Um, Iga has that going for her now, but in terms of competitive intrigue, there's there's very, very little. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that because, um, <clears throat> you know, for me, if Muguruza played her best, if Badoza played her best on clay, if Kreshikova played like she played last year, if Kantavate is hitting the ball as hard as she was hitting at the back of the, hand, the end of the year, then it would be a lot more competitive because, yes, Iga is really good and she's doing a lot of things extremely good, but she can have some competition and you have seen it in Guadalajara last year. She didn't win that and her forehand was really starting to break down. So she had to reset, take a new coach and do a lot of things differently. But since Ash has been taking her retirement, you know, it's always the same in women's tennis. It's your one, everyone is coming up, no one has pointed to defend, everyone is playing free and a lot of girls are winning matches and then year two comes and then everyone's collapsing and same for Raducanu in a way. I think if, if M, let's say Iga is playing against Emma last year, the way she was playing in the US Open, even though the surface is different, she's going to have some competition. The problem is for the rest of the girls, they just can't keep that level. And the reason of that are extremely multiples and we would need a whole new show to talk about it. But that is what women's tennis problems are right now. This is a core of the women's tennis problem is when players are performing extremely well for a year, they have an extremely hard time to do that in a long period of time. And that was, for me, the main difference compared to when I used, play, I used to play, when you had Justin Enna, when you had Kim Clasters, when you have Mary Pierce, when you have Emily Moresmo, when you had Serena at her best, Venus, Dementieva, Sharapova, and all of those, you had the same pack for, let's say, 10 years. And if you want to break that, you had to be extremely good for a long period of time, just not one year in and out, because you might get into the top 10 and then you went back to 50 in the world. And that consistency is lacking for now. And I think that the WTA is really looking to get that consistency again, because otherwise you get a final in, done in one hour. Final for Grand Slam. All right, Carol Bouchard, back to the original question. Is it possible that we're still somehow underestimating Iga? Is it possible? I don't think nobody is underestimating Yashantek right now because she's been kicking everybody's ass since months. So, no, no, I think the issue is exactly what Marion said. The others, they need to catch up. The problem is that you need targets, you know, you need to see the bar and you need targets. But we've lost, we've lost Naomi Osaka in a way. We've lost Bianca Andrescu. We've lost Arena Sabalenka. Those are three players that should be with Iga clear targets. Garbinier should still be here. So that's, that's also, Bad luck of injuries. Uh, Krejcikova, she did an elbow. That's not her fault. Um, we Ons losing, Ons Jabeur losing first round was a bit of a disaster. Uh, but you need these targets to raise the level of the game and also to to get the rivalries going on. So you get the narrative. But because we had fantastic finals not that long ago. I mean, Sharapova Halep was really good. Ostapenko winning was really good. Um, Krejcikova had three set battles. It's just that right now. Siantek is so much better than anybody else that she's going to be like Federer, Rafa, or Novak in, in, in their greatest days. She's going to thrash everybody. So I think the bar is here. And the, the other one, they need to make us feel that they want to catch up. Because sometimes I'm not even sure 
they want to catch up, like they're ready to work as hard as Fiontech is working or Barty was working to catch up. They're happy with losing most of the time. They, they don't look like it's a death and life out there. Maybe it's healthier because they have taken a step back from the pressure. But if you don't want this as bad as Fiontech wanted this, despite having 34 wins already, then you're going to have a problem. So let's stay on the women's side, but in particular, overall, the French Open. Um, I'm going to ask you guys to fill in the blank. I'm going to give you a statement, and I want you to fill in the blank with the rest of what you believe the answer should be. French Open tournament director Amélie Morissimo's comments about men's matches being much more attractive for the evening session than women's matches were blank. Her comments were blank. Carol, I'll let you fill in the blank first. Oh, that's what's wrong. Can I can I develop, or do you just want the answer? I, I want you to elaborate upon. What I think do that's you wrong because what do you call fascinating and what do you call men's tennis? Djokovic, Nadal, and Alcaraz are fascinating. It's three players. Sasha Zverev isn't selling you one ticket. Uh, so what is you know what is men's tennis? A Benchich, Fernandez on the women's side was extremely good. Is that not worth a nice session? Uh, Madison Keys, Caroline Garcia, you add those matches. The thing is, what do we call fascinating? Seeing the stars? Of course. Then you put Novak, Rafa, and Alcaraz at every night session. I think the unfortunately she doesn't have, I mean, it's sending the woman under the bus because you cannot say that your system is flawed because you have only one match night session, that the tickets are hella expensive and that you need to make sure that people get enough for their money. But you cannot say that women tennis hasn't been fascinating with the Osaka, the Andreescu, Kreshikova last year was insane. We get Coco Gauff, Fiontech. You, you cannot say Iga Fiontech doesn't deserve a night session. I think I don't think Amelie really wanted to say that. I think she's bit, she's stuck between the fact that she cannot say my tournament system right now is not working. So you're trying to find other ways. But men's tennis, it's three players right now. And Marin Cilic having the run that he had, nobody expected, was fun. But if you're talking about people selling tickets for entire stadium, it's three guys. So I don't, I mean, Trevisan and Zverev, for me, that's the same. Osaka is not selling as much ticket as Medvedev or Sasha Zverev. I don't think so. So that's the wrong debate for me. So I think that's why she was wrong, because she put it on the wrong debate, and then it became all thing, I mean, Billy Jinking, what's coming the next day. It was all unfortunate. I think the issue is that the system with the night sessions doesn't work. All right, Ben Rothersberg, uh, same question. Her comments, Amelie Mar Marismo's comments, the women's match more attractive for the night session than women's uh, matches are. Her comments were blank. Fill in that blank. My blank is going to be sloppy. I don't think that's what she meant. I, I, I mean, I don't think that was a good articulation of the issue of night session scheduling. I don't think... I, I was at the whole press conference with Marismo, and I got to say, like, I don't feel like she was super prepared for the moment of being a uh, tournament director facing the media for the first time like that. I think she didn't have answers prepared for a lot of honestly pretty basic kind of questions about especially the most obvious topics, which were going to be night session scheduling. She didn't really have a very clear take on a lot of topics of the gender side of it. Obviously, we've got a lot of attention when we're talking about now, but also just about running too late about one match, transportation. Well, yeah, I mean, I think she landed on, right, she was not articulate, and she landed on one particular thought that landed particularly badly. She said in later interviews, and she did a bunch of interviews to kind of make up for it, and then a couple of days later, she said, you know, she mentioned the best of three, best of five thing, and saying that it's tough to put, you know, potentially a short match in this one-match session. I mean, the real problem with the night sessions is the one-match thing. It's very difficult to schedule that, 
and, ha- and put a, a best three match over best of five. A lot of fans aren't going to like that. And then also it's just risky in general uh, to put just one set. I, ha- I ha- always hate it. Whenever it comes up in tennis, sessions that are only one match, I think it's very, very risky. I remember been to sessions, you know, where somebody rolls an ankle in the first two games of the match and, you know, it ends after 10 minutes and then people go home very unsatisfied. I think they should have a system where it's at least two matches per session every time that would allow for more gender balance as well. So there are bigger issues. And I think just watching Moresma up there at the podium, sort of trying to describe why women's tennis is less attractive was not the right sort of lane for her to go down. I think she got kind of lost in that answer and, and regretted it and honestly annoyed and deeply sort of, you know, really pissed off, honestly, a lot of other people in women's tennis and a lot of the sort of other former players felt really betrayed by having a former WTA number one sort of being seen as disparaging women's tennis right now. They saw it as something that was just not fair to their product and this sort of uh, community and sisterhood that they they really take very seriously. Marion, you know her, you've played against her. Um, Your thoughts to fill in the blank on her comments and then what do we not know that you do about her perhaps in, in maybe how that was misarticulated, as Ben points out. Well, it's it's exactly what Carol said. The problem is the price of the tickets and the length of the matches. And based on women's tennis length of the matches right now, how you can put Iga on a nice session if she get the win in 55 minutes or an hour. And you start at 9 at 10 p.m., everyone is saying, well, you know, you pay 250 euros for your ticket and you just go home. And someone who has paid for a day session is getting three matches for almost the same price and sometimes a little less. And you just can't explain that. So they, and I know she she's already thinking of how to reshape entirely the schedule on Philippe Chatrier. And I know for certain that she won't do the same schedule for next year. That is a certain. But for this year, that was just, you know, the schedule has been done that way. It was just that one match and she just couldn't take the risk to just, you know, have so many people unsatisfied because they just don't get their run for their money, which is fair. You know, you just can't ask for someone who paid that amount of money to have a match that possibly can last an hour, an hour, 15 minutes. Of course, it can happen on the ma- on the men's side, but it's a lot unlikely. And as Ben said, you take the risk of having someone being injured. So that said, it's a, it was the first year of Emily, and she took note about it, and she knows that the one night night session doesn't work. But you had to give her a little bit of time. What she was meaning in saying that it's really hard for her to put women's matches is because of the lens of the women's matches now. And how competitive or sometimes not competitive at all they are. That's the main problem. And and because of that, and because it was a one year, it was her first year, and because it was a one night match, she decided on several occasions to yes, put something that was a little safer. But I just don't understand that sort of trash against her to go and say, oh, she's not an advocate of women's tennis and this and that, because there is a business reality be- behind that nice session. And even when you're working as a working as a broadcaster, I mean, it's really hard for us to just say it's at the end of the nice session, well, sorry guys, we just broadcast for an hour, an hour and a half, and then, yeah, see you tomorrow. You know, people want to have a nice session for Three hours. How long was Djokovic-Nishoka, for example? Because, of course, that's the issue. But Djokovic-Nishoka was a one-way traffic. And last year, I think Forge had, Forge had a system where you own it. I mean, that's your system. You own it. So you had a rotation and you take the risk. But I completely understand that Emily on her first year was like, that, that's risky. But then, unfortunately, that's the system that we get now. My problem is, I mean, that's their problem more. What are they going to do next year? Because in my memory, they had to deal with the neighborhood. 
They had swore that there would, not, there would never be two matches. It's like the Wimbledon curfew situation. So do they take the risk that we're going to trip, you know, to justice again? What's happening? Do we put a double? I mean, are you, is the US Open that does four matches on the center court? Uh, two at the, two at night and two men, two women, but then you're taking one more match away from Chatrier and you get tickets up to what? 300 euros? I mean, that, Carol, hold I mean, that, hold that thought for one second. Marion, go ahead and answer back. I know, Ben, you want to get to Marion as well. Marion, go ahead. Two things. The only women's matches that would play is nice session was Corne against Ostapenko, right? Everyone is correct on that? How how was the length yeah. of the first set? It 18. 20 minutes or something, no? So let's say you double that, yeah. okay? Let's say Ostapenko doesn't put two balls in a row inside the court for that match. It's 36 minutes, okay? So, thank... Yeah. So, honestly, thank God... It went to three sets, and at the end, the French girl won, so everyone was sort of happy, and we immediately got away with that. But do you think she's going to take the risk another time to go to go through that and put Iga, who's going to beat the other girl in 55 minutes? And have someone paying 300 euros and having to then, you know, come into Paris to watch that match and then leave and say, yeah, I, won. I, see, I saw someone win in 55 minutes. You guys, I mean, you can have, yes, a general idea, and of course, a general idea is to have an equality Absolutely, and we all agree on that. But then there is a reality. And the reality with one match starting at 9 p.m., it's extremely difficult when you don't have a French player or an, a clash that you know is going to be a three-setter and you know is going to be a tight one to put that match on. I was walking around Roland Garros in the, in the alley and you, you see less and less families. You see less and less diversity because it is so expensive. The food, everything. And the but they have, they, so they have the they, most... They will have to they have the, this, but the best intentions ever. Open the night session they have the best intentions ever this year. Because you don't need on clay. On Grand Slam on clay doesn't need a night session. You wanted the money from the ticket, but then now you have caused much more issues that we had in the past. That's no, Ron Garros... No, let's come back to that for one second. Ron Garros need absolutely a nice session. If you don't put a nice session in Ron Garros, in 10 years' time, you're dead. Okay? Everyone is having a nice session. Everyone is putting a show. Of course, Wimbledon is completely separate, but Wimbledon will say by itself. That's another story. You, you can't compete with Wimbledon. So three otherwise, you have to bring a show, and people are looking for a show. And people go to work during the day in Paris. End of May, beginning of June is not holiday. So you need to give the chance to the Parisians who are working to be able at the end of the day to look forward to go and see a tennis match. So that's not a question anymore. Now, to come back to, come back to the attendance, the attendance hasn't been as high as ever this year. More than 700,000 people crossed the gates this year. So it was an absolutely fantastic success. When you look at the atmosphere on Simon Mathieu, when you look at the atmosphere on Suzanne Longren, the population on Chatrier doesn't reflect the population of Roland Garros. When you go to Suzanne Langen, exactly. I've been doing the, the on-court interview on, of Novak Djokovic on the Wednesday. It was 1,000 kids, and I'm not kidding, waiting to get his photograph, his autograph, and, and, and pictures as well. But the night sessions, Marion, they're not full. The night sessions, they're, they weren't full. And people yeah, but you can't say there is no children coming anymore in Roland Garros. There is a lot of children coming to Roland Garros. That's not the issue. It's important to remember, these aren't tennis matches, and this isn't a tennis tournament. These are television shows, and the audience watching around the world on television is significantly larger than will be there in person. And the money generated, and the money generated via television is significantly greater than there on site for that gate. So sometimes we lose track of what's fair and what's right. We forget, it's just TV shows. 
Well, people in France on TV at midnight, they didn't see the end of, of Djokovic right. because Nadal, because they had to work the next day. So they went to sleep at right. 11 or 11.30. So it's, I mean... That's, yeah, that's not true based, that's not true based on the rates we had on Amazon. For putting things that doesn't work, that don't work. So and they need to match it on, at Wait, night now. They need to Marian, match it. Marianne, what's, not true? what's not true, Mark? Based on the, the rates we had from Prime Video, that because we had the exclusivity on that match, people stay all the way through. Ben, you haven't had a chance to get in on this, so go right ahead, please. There are arguments for sure for why the schedule the way it was, but it wasn't what Amelie said. We're talking about her comments. She didn't say that. She said women's tennis was less appealing, and that was the problematic remark that got her in trouble there. Let's move on now to Billie Jean King, who offered up a solution to the Roland Garros night session idea. She said, have the men play three sets. Is that actually a good idea, or is that a bad idea? Uh, Carol, you start. Well, I mean, that's not the first time that, I mean, I'm, I'm honestly, personally, I'm tired of those format questions because the issue is not the format. The issue is that you have just one match at night, one match at night. That's the main issue. So again, it's like Wimbledon changing because of this so long game between two guys who couldn't get broken. We don't change the entire sport because of one thing that's been annoying one time. Uh, I, I don't think, and again, we talk about the long, you know, the length of the matches and the price people uh, are paying for the tickets. We don't have any interest in Roland Garros to shorten the matches again. I think it's, that's not the issue. The issue is the, pro, is the scheduling, the issue is at night session, and we need to, to solve it. And you don't solve it by destroying the entire format. I, from my opinion is that the format is not an issue. I mean, I understand that maybe it's better to have a, a tie break in the end of the fifth. We've lost a lot of kind of... A, Epic or stuff. I love the two games, you know, different, but I understand. Okay. But now if we, until when are we going to shorten, you know, the format? Four games? Uh, what is it? Are we going to have, uh, you know, sort of, I don't know. I, th I don't think, I think it's an, a way to avoid the reality of the problem, which is the scheduling, which is the television with it saying, to be honest, to take money first, business first, and the rest after. Then own it and that's it. Okay. All right, Marion, very quickly, briefly. Marion, your thoughts? Same. Completely agree with Carol. For me, it's not the format is the issue. For me, when you can start your night session, let's say 6.30, p.m., depending on who you want to put, you put one man, one woman, or one woman, one man, and you're good. The format is not the issue. I completely agree with Carol. All right, Ben, same thing, quickly. Uh, I completely agree with Billie Jean King. I think this is a great fix, and it's always going to be a problem in terms of gender equality so long as they play different formats. And if the men are taking up this much longer time on the big stage and their matches are seen as more worthy of prime scheduling because they're more likely to last longer, that's always going to keep the women behind. And also this semifinal we had between Nadal and Zverev was over three hours before they even got to a second set tiebreak. No, it was on pace to be like seven hours long. No sporting event needs to be that long. What are we, what are we doing here? Especially at the French Open, which already is the slowest. It is the tournament that should most have best of three for the men. It would do a lot of great things for the sport. It would level things out, reinvigorate doubles and all for it. Billie Jean is right on the money here. But once again, you change the whole sport for one match. It doesn't make any sense. It's like, what was the match? Isner, Isner Anderson or something that, because of them, we have screwed the entire format at Grand Slam. I'm so, I'm still mad at this match, actually. <laughs> we still talk about the final of the Australian Open 2012 because it was an epic. We don't talk about a three-setter that goes one way. Do you remember a close match that was a three-setter in, into a Miami final? Of course not. There were classic women's matches that happened in history without being best of five. You can, if, if you're, you're, there are matches that you played that I'm sure were, were classics in your career without being best of five. 
my, my advocacy is to say that the final for women should be based on five. For the final. See, I don't, I don't mind that as much as if, if you want length for the one session ticket. Exactly. One, one match session again. And then you put two That's matches at night session and you're good. You don't have to change the length of the men's. All right. So then all things considered, the back and forth, the exchange, the debate, all things considered, in your opinion, what is the best solution for the night sessions at Roland Garros? What would be the best solution, period? Marion, go ahead. The best solution for me at the night session of Roland Garros will be two matches turning earlier. Let's say 6.30, 7 p.m. maximum. One woman's match first, one men's. In case you know the men's doesn't run for so long, you put the men's first and then the woman's second. But you start earlier and you put two matches. Okay, Ben, same question. What's the solution? Now you start earlier like 7 o'clock and you have two matches, one men's and women's, and both are best of three. And you also put a skew on the night scheduling, which I think they did last year, uh, but not at all this year, towards uh, countries where it's actually helpful for TV. So put more Canadians, more Americans, more Argentinians in the night session because it's actually good for, for their viewers. Like that match, Nadal and, and Felix with a Canadian should have absolutely been a night match. That, that was a terrible pick to put uh, Kachinov Alcaraz that night. All right, Kara Bouchard, what is the solution? What is the answer? <laughs> they cancel those damn night sessions at Roland Garros, but it won't happen. So of course it's four matches a day, two day, two at night, two men, two women. That's, that's so easy that there's a reason it doesn't happen. And I think that won't be that easy to implement, but that's the only way. Marion, I know that you wanted to challenge something that Ben said a moment ago. Go right ahead. No, but, but, but to ticket, to, for ticket buyers, though, they say it's the match of the day. You buy it, you only get one match in this whole session. They, they, they owe the buyers a better match. They, they're not delivering on the promise of the tickets. But did you see what France Television, did you see the whole fuzz that France Television did because they didn't get Nadal Djokovic? So if they do that, yeah, but if they do that two times, if they do that two times during Round Girls, Amelie is not going to survive. So at the end of the day, you have to just, you know, find your way through. And also the players, they hate it. I mean, the, the players, they hate it. It's cold. It's 10 degrees out there. We're not the US Open nor Australia. It's not hot at night in Paris in May. It's freaking cold. Like, nobody likes it. I think it's dishonest almost to ticket, to ticket buyers. I had a lot of people contact me who had bought tickets to the, to the night session thinking they would see Djokovic or Nadal, and they got Alcaraz three times. And he's obviously people like him, but he's not the big star. He's not going to be the match of the day very often this stage of his career. So I think if they're going to advertise it as match of the day, that's their term, and only give you one match for your hundreds of euros you're paying, they really have to deliver and actually give you a great match. I don't care if Rafa doesn't like it. It has to be the product for people. Yeah, but that's why next year is going to change. Once again, I understand the point of the ones who is paying the tickets, but you have to understand that when you're sitting as a tournament director in the scheduling room, you don't only do the scheduling with you looking at the schedule and doing whatever you want. You have France Television pushing for one thing because they want to have Rafa at the prime time in the middle of the day or Novak in the prime time in the middle of the day. Then you have Prime Video is asking for something else because they're obviously having the exclusivity for the night session. Then you have France Television coming back to you and saying, hey, you know what? We are French public TV and we need to have that match and this match and this match. And then you have the team of every single player. And at the end of the day, you just can't have the schedule you want every single day. So you try to do something medium. And for the match, you know it's really the best match and you have to go and fight for what you believe is right, which is putting Nadal Djokovic on the night. Then you go in front of France Television and you say, well, you know what, SU, because we're going to put it in night session. That's the reality. But you can't do that on every single night session because you can't survive the two weeks. 
in the end, it's important to remember it's not about what's fair. It's not about what's right. It's about what's money. In the end, we have to admit what this is correct. All right. And finally, team, our last question of this edition of Match Points. As we look ahead, we shift gears now out of Roland Garros and look ahead to Wimbledon, which is coming here very in short order. As we look ahead to Wimbledon and the continuing political situation with Ukraine and Russia, what should the ATP and the WTA actually be doing about the Russian and Belarusian players? What should they actually, what would be right? Let's talk, let's talk now about what is right, what is fair. Ben, please get us started. I, it's, it's tricky, and obviously there's been a lot of conversation about this for months now. In the sport, I'm guessing you've talked about it on the show as well. I would say, you know, I understand everything that happened to Wimbledon, actually. I understand Wimbledon feeling the pressure from the British government to uh, kick out the Russians and Belarusians, and I also completely understand the response from ATP and WTA, saying that if it's not an equal opportunity tournament for all of our members, then we can't award rankings for it. Uh, I think in some ways it actually worked out okay. It's obviously not ideal, but I think I understand the moves from every party. And I think certainly ATP and WTA did the right thing by removing ranking points um, because that was not an equitable tournament that at this point. And even, wh- whether you disagree with the invasion or not, I think everyone disagrees with the invasion and strongly condemns the invasion and the war and everything that Putin is doing. That said, still, it's still not fair to these players to have a system um, of discrimination against them when they didn't do anything individually wrong any of these Russian or Belarusian athletes. So I, I, I see all sides of it. It's just frustrating issue. Um, and I'm actually kind of on the side that mostly people handled it right. I don't, no one else has followed Wimbledon's example or, or Britain's example of banning the players. And no other countries have done this yet, which is a little bit surprising. Uh, there was some talk that maybe Italy would do it for, for Rome or some other tournaments would do it. But so far they're on their own. Um, and everything else is just kind of proceeding as normal. Exactly what what Ben said. I mean, it's it's a very very tricky situation. It's very hard to to go and say to women they did something wrong because they are following the government's rules and policy. And you've seen that um, the British government have been retaking really extremely strong action. You've seen in in, uh, in soccer as well. So they're just aligning themselves with that. Um, then for the WTA and ATP. I think, of course, some players won't be happy because they're going to lose their points that have been doing extremely well last year at Wimbledon and they're going to you know, fall back a lot in the ranking. But you know what? It goes with everybody and and this sort of will you know, middle through everyone and you can catch back your points afterwards. Um, I just want the situation to end, to be honest. I just want this war to end. I just want this sort of disaster to be over when I see... Um, Zvitolina, I was sitting one day next to Marta Kostiuk at, uh, at the player's restaurant in Rangaros, being in tears and being on the phone constantly. I think those players are under a tremendous amount of stress constantly. And I just want that to be over. Um, I think taking decisions, whether there's points or playing a tournament, I think it's extremely low in terms of scales compared to what they're going through. Um, because I don't think one tournament would chase globally and overall their career. Uh, but I just think I just want the situation to end, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely agree with Mario on everything. I think also we shouldn't forget uh, history and the place sports has been taking, you know, uh, with propaganda. It, it's it's a tool. We all know that. We can't just watch and oh, you know, we might be overreacting. Sports and propaganda, it, it's it's a machine that works together and that can be used, which is true. Then you are in a tricky situation. My only question that I still cannot understand is why they don't just freeze the points. I don't understand why you need to screw 95% of your players' ranking to, to, uh, to 
you know, go around what Wimbledon is doing. You could have just frozen 2021 Wimbledon's point. So uh, the damage to some of the players' ranking is, is going to be crazy, honestly. And the lower ranked are going to be impacted the most. There was never an ideal solution on, on this topic. But the minimal damage would have been to freeze the point. I've been told, yes, but the tour wants to make a point to the Grand Slam to show them that they don't, they can't do whatever they want to. But was this the ill to die on? I, I don't know. It's, it's extremely complicated uh, topic, and I'm just, I don't think that it would have been so easy to freeze the point. I still can't understand why they don't just freeze the point, so that's, that's my only regret on that. I've heard that WT hasn't made a definitive decision, though. I think the ATP said we're going to take away the points, but I think uh, WT has just said we won't award a new points, so I think maybe the girls can have a hope to escape this. Uh, it's a mess. And also, it's not going to be stopping at Wimbledon because, unfortunately, the war is still going on. Uh, we don't know what maybe the US Open could do or, or, or else it's... Yeah, it's a mess. But yeah, what can we do? I mean, it's, it's so much bigger than tennis. Honestly, at the end, it's an entry list. Like, people are dying every day in Ukraine, you know, which, yeah. We will get more into the points in the next episode as we do that. Uh, panel, Karen Bouchard, Marian Bartoli, Ben Rothberg, thank you guys so much. Remember, uh, read more about all these and more exclusive content here at TennisMajors.com, as well as the audio-only podcast and more video presentations as well. Make sure you follow on social media as well. And we'll have a new episode for you for Wimbledon. On behalf of the panel, Josh Cohen saying thank you for watching. We will catch you next time for the next episode of Match Points right here on TennisMajors.com. <laughs>